Well, good morning. I'm so glad to have everybody here. I'd like all of our veterans, anybody that's served in the military, would you just stand up right where you're at? We just want to thank you guys, these two men that have stood in our country and stood to defend us and protect our families and our churches and our way of life here. And let's give these two men a big hand. And you guys may be seated, Barry and Patrick, and thank you. Thank you so much for your service. This is uh, our Veterans Day weekend, and we need to remember our veterans and, and thank them for their love and service to us. Um, it's, it's so good to be with my brothers and sisters here this morning. Um, if you're a guest today, um, either online or here today in person, I welcome you to the Crosswinds family. We believe that the church is a family, not not institution. And, and this is the Crosswinds family. And in all of our lives and all of our families, there are seasons of suffering and trial. And our family at Crosswinds here has been experiencing one this fall. And as I look around here at my family, I can't think of anyone, including myself, who isn't experiencing some form of loss today. It may be the death of somebody you loved dearly. It may be that your teen is growing up and rejecting the relationship with you right now as they try to find their, their way in life and, and, and you miss those times where they once listened to you and obeyed you and even wanted to talk to you. It's a loss. We grieve. Uh, it may be a season where your health is is suffering, and you mourn the loss of your vibrancy and your capacity to do the things you used to enjoy doing. It may be that your parents are aging, and your role has now changed to be a caregiver, and you mourn the loss of having parents. Maybe they have Alzheimer's, and, and it feels like they're dead, but they're, they're still with you. They're still alive, but, but the relationship's changed, and, and, and there's a loss. It, it may be uh, the loss of a job that, that once gave you purpose and joy. And now that, that, that job is, has come to an end or that, that purpose. It may be a divorce or a breakup with somebody that you loved. It, it may be a, a betrayal of a friend or a, a loved one. And, and you've lost trust, but you missed that closeness that you once had. And maybe it's the loss of a, a church friend because they've moved out of Illinois to escape our taxes here. <laughs> a lot of them have in the last few years. And uh, maybe they've left the faith. Maybe they've left the church. And you just miss seeing them around and the fun that you once had with them. And maybe it's economic. You once had resources to do things and now you find in this economy your budget is limited and, and it's way beyond your control. Maybe you feel the loss of your culture. You remember a simpler time where neighbors and friends seem to be civil to one another and, and, and get along and you see all the fighting and disunity that happens now maybe in your neighborhood or, you, or your family. Friends, there's not a person here in this room, who is not experiencing some form of loss in their life. And I, and I want you to know, Crosswinds is a place where it's okay to not be okay. You know, that 
This is a place we can grieve. And we're all going through something. And no matter how good we look on the outside and pretend to be unsinkable, we all can feel those losses inside. Sometimes people are like ducks. They look smooth on the surface, but they're kicking like crazy just to get through life. Well, here we, you know, flip the duck over. Like, you know, let, let people know that hey, it's, I'm not okay right now, but I will be because of Jesus, but I'm hurting. Here's reality. Some of you are experiencing everything that I've talked to all at once right now. Right? I mean, I had a moment last week where, like, I just went like, enough, Lord? Right? Like, everything seemed to hit at once in our church family. Economic hardships, declining family members, rebellious teens, betrayal of friends, loss of romantic love, loss of health, loss of job, loss of economic freedoms. All of that at once can happen sometimes in our lives in certain seasons. And friends, it may be for you right now a really tough season. I use this word season very purposefully because while it's hard right now, it's a season that will pass for those who love God right? It's a season that will pass. See, the Bible is a a book that is honest about suffering, the suffering we go through as people. It does not sugarcoat that there is suffering in life, but it does give a living hope that this season of suffering will someday be replaced with incredible joy. The Bible reminds us in our suffering that God is for us, that he's not against us. Both believers and non-believers go through suffering. The difference is, as believers, we have hope in it. And also believers can have joy in it. But the truth is, suffering is real for everyone. For everyone. In 58 years of life, I've experienced a few different seasons of suffering. In 2016, I had all those losses I just talked about hit me at once. It was a hard year. Actually, it's still been hard since 2016 in many ways. And it was very hard to maintain hope at times. But I learned that God has a purpose, even in our suffering. And that there can be great joy in the midst of that suffering. And on the other side of it in a new season. And I remember when suffering hit me hard, I remember calling out, why, why, God, in my grief? But through it, God has taught me instead to ask a better question. What, what, God, what are you doing in my life right now? See, what assumes that God is good and he has a purpose that he's accomplishing even in our suffering? And today's message is is called Surviving and Thriving in Life's Losses. God sometimes just gives us the power to just survive it. Sometimes we're just white-knuckling it, holding on to him with everything we've got. And uh, this verse got me through a tough season. I'll share it with you in 2016 and on. God is our refuge and our strength and a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, And though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, 
And the first line is, God is. And because he is, we have a hiding place. And when we're white knuckling, when we're just surviving and we have no strength, he is our strength. He helps us survive the trial. You know, friends, it's bad when the mountains are falling out underneath you and the seas are, are foaming. That's a bad day if, like, the place you're standing is, is going out. We can't be thriving at that moment. We're just surviving, right? It's, it, it's bad. But God, you know, we can count on what the, the rest of that psalm says is God and his kingdom will not be moved. So when everything else seems to be falling apart, God's kingdom will not be moved. There is still a hope in him. There's something firm. Also in suffering, we can thrive, friends. We can thrive in suffering. I look back at times of suffering now with a fond affection for them. That may sound weird, but I've had some of the best times of my life in times of suffering. I'm not saying I want to go back there. Lord, you hear that? Right? They hurt. But I now see how close God was to me and how he helped me thrive through it and the joy that was in it. The Apostle Paul says this, so we do not lose heart through our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are, unseen, that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen or the things that are seen are transient. They just, they're like those waters that foam. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And Paul was a man that was acquainted with suffering. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. Friends left him. He had health issues. He did not find his soulmate other than Jesus. His friends died, and he was martyred. And all for doing good. And yet, he causes suffering, a light momentary affliction. A light momentary affliction. And, and that's not to minimize our suffering. It's to put it into perspective that it's a season. And it's a season we can thrive in it because it's preparing us for something greater. A glory we can't imagine if we will just not lose heart or lose courage or faith through our suffering. Friends, in suffering, there are unseen things that, that we need to understand to help us thrive and survive. And as I prayed this week, I was reminded of our friend Job and the, the book of Job. And so I'd like you to open your Bibles to that um, uh, chapter. And I think you will see some things in it that will help you in these seasons of suffering that we go through. It starts out this way. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one whom feared God and turned away from evil. Now, scholars believe that Job is the most ancient book of the Bible. Now, it's, it's not before Genesis. That's not what it's saying. The first five books, the Pentateuch, were written down much later um, by Moses. But, but it's believed that this book... Um, uh, our scholars believe that it, it came somewhere between Noah and Abraham, maybe a, a little bit later. It's a very early book. And, and why we know that is the, the form of Hebrew poetry that it's written in is so old that, that, that scholars can't figure out the exact meaning of some of the words. That's how old it is. 
And we understand the theme of it. That, that's very clear, and it's, it's, it's poetry. But um, sometimes it says things like, this tastes bad, and we don't really understand what tasted bad. We just know that something tasted bad. That's the kind of things I'm talking about. It talks about a creature called behemoth, and it might be a dinosaur. It might be a dragon. We, we, don't, we don't know what animal it's even talking about fully. You know, it's, it's, it's a language sometimes that we don't yet understand. Um, but it's Hebrew poetry. And it's not like our rhyming stanzas. Roses are red, violets are blue, my feet stink, and so do you. It's not like that kind of thing, right? I wasn't in it, so I was just having fun, right? Um, <laughs> Hebrew poetry goes back and forth over a central theme, and that's what Job is doing. The whole book is going over this central theme on suffering and helping us understand it. And uh, it was written by the Holy Spirit to help us understand God and human suffering very early, man needed, right after, um, you know, it shows us that, that, that right after sin came into the world, man started suffering very quickly. And, and we need this book to help them pr- put this in perspective. But there's something very important, I think we learned in this first verse. Not all suffering is caused by our own sin. Not all suffering is caused by our own sin. Often, what makes us suffer worse in suffering is when we feel we're responsible for it. When we, when we, we take responsibility for the suffering. We, we humans often look for a source to blame it on, either ourselves or, or, or other people. And we can cause a lot of our own suffering in that. But friends, there, there's suffering, this is telling us, in life that we don't cause. Bad things happen. In John 9, people were arguing around Jesus, trying to assign blame for a blind man's blindness. And they were saying, was, was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? And Jesus said very clearly, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, God had a purpose in his suffering. So sometimes our suffering is to show the glory and the goodness of God. You know, the rest of the book of Job is... Uh, you know, uh, Job is being tortured by his good friends, right? Who are trying to assign blame to him for why he's suffering. But, but the text here tells us that Job is a good man. He fears God. He repents and he admits when he's doing wrong. He is called blameless. And that doesn't mean sinless because sinless would be a vertical relationship with God. Horizontally with people, he's blameless. Nobody could fault Job of wrong and how he deals with people. Job is good to people. In this passage, you will see his concern for his children. Job also prays for his friends who, who do wrong him when there are accusations in this book. And, and Job is portrayed in this book as a compassionate person, deeply committed to helping the vulnerable, including the poor, widows, orphans, and actively seeking justice for those who are in need. There is nothing in his character as a human being that says he caused his own suffering because of his own sin. Friends, one of the hardest times of suffering is when we're doing everything right. And yet, we're still suffering. That's really hard. Because we all have this false belief that doing good always gets you rewarded in life. 
And that's not true theologically, and that's what Job's trying to tell us. Sometimes in life, no good deed goes unpunished. Right? Because there's someone who wants to punish you for doing good. Friends, some of us thrive, for some of us to thrive in our suffering, we need to stop assigning blame to ourselves or, or blame to others, which just increases suffering. Crying with someone or, or crying yourself in suffering is better than trying to figure out why by casting blame. Casting blame leaves us lame or, or, or feeling powerless in suffering, accepting that God uses suffering to accomplish his purposes is actually something that empowers us to continue to do good in suffering. Job's honesty and goodness in life, friends, had made him rich. You know, sometimes in our culture we consider rich people evil, but that's also another falsehood. Riches do not define someone's character. And the truth is, the Bible tells us good character can reward us with riches if we love and worship God and not our riches. It was God who blessed Job with good things. Let, let's talk about his wealth. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters, and he possessed 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys and many servants so that the man was the greatest of all the people in the east. You know, God blessed Job with 10 children and, and wealth in livestock. We don't know the time exactly when Job lived, but I did some estimation. Here's an estimate of Job's net worth. If we go to the next slide. He's got some bank, right? $2.8 million, right? If you look at the cost of his livestock. The text says, um, Job was not only wealthy, he had an amazing reputation. He was known by all the people of the East. His, the story of Job was trending everywhere in the ancient world. That's what that's saying. And, it, it, and his son used to go and hold feasts in the house, each one of them on his day, which is his birthday, and they would send an invite to their three sisters, and eat and drink with them. Uh, you know, it, 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 it indicates that Job and his sons and his daughters all celebrated their birthday together. They had feasts, inviting all the siblings, and they all came. Who's here from a large family? Is it always like that? You know, I've known a lot of large families. There can be a lot of uh, different opinions, and, and they don't always get along, right? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Job has a family that they love each other. There's harmony. Verse 5 says, and, and there was a day of the feast would run their course. When those feasts, those birthday days, and run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and, and he would rise in, early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children might have sinned and, and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job you know, did this kind of worship continually over his children. See, Job is a conscientious father who who, who, who prayed and offered sacrifices for his children, acknowledging the possibility of their sin. It wasn't an act of accusation, friends, but a reflection of the understanding of the human frailty and suffering and his role as a father. Sometimes the best thing we can do for our adult children is to pray for them and not point out their sin. 
right? Maybe even teenagers. Maybe even everybody. Maybe. His religious practice was not about judgment. It was about protection and provision for his children. The first part of this chapter highlights Job's commendable, though not perfect, character. But as the book progresses, you'll start to see some of Job's imperfections. He challenges and questions God. He, he justifies himself. He, he shows impatience and frustration. And sometimes he acts very entitled. And these aspects of his character remind us that trials, as, as mentioned in James, can be an instrument God uses for our growth and, and for our thriving. One of my favorite verses, because when I became a Christian, I just I started suffering, I guess. It's counted all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, uh, uh, trials of various kinds, for you know that they are testing of your faith which produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing, James 1, 2 to 4. Love that verse. Live that verse. Because I was getting after us. <laughs> Sorry, we preached on AI last week, and it's getting back at me. Um, anyways, God allows trials to perfect us. And I had a lot of trials early on as a believer because I needed a lot of perfecting. This diamond was a little rough, still is, right? And, and so, um, but that's not always apparent to us in the midst of trials that God is perfecting us. And the book of Job pulls back the curtain to see that there's something bigger going on and so now the book changes to the scene of heaven. And there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came along with them. And now we see what is unseen by Job and is often unseen by us, the sons of God. Now the sons of God here are angelic beings. Now I, I didn't say angels because we think of angels as always benevolent. But look who's with them, Satan. And he's not benevolent. His, his name in the, uh, in the Hebrew means adversary. He's opposed to both God and humanity. He's not there to help. And this heavenly gather hints, gathering hints at a, a, a big cosmic struggle, which is the same theme that is echoed by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, 12, where he speaks of us not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And the Lord says to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answers the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And, and this verse reveals a really crucial truth that our adversary, Satan, is not God's equal. Contrary to the Eastern concept of yin and yang where these forces are balancing one another, what the Bible teaches is this, the, a scenario depicts like... Um, God as supreme power and a mere irritant akin to a terrorist in Satan. God is in charge. He's confined. He must report his activities to God. In this sense, we don't understand how this works. He's reporting his activities. I'm just going to and fro on the earth. He, he's accountable to God. He, 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 he lacks the divine attributes of um omniscience he doesn't know everything and he and omnipresence he's not everywhere he has to travel and and he's not omnipotent he's not a free agent his power is being limited 
by boundaries set by God. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Notice who initiates the conversation about Job. it's, It's God himself. He acknowledges Job's righteousness. Wouldn't it be nice to hear God talking good about you? How do you picture God? He's going, or is he talking good about you? Because he loves you. He acknowledges Job's righteousness, not in the sense that he's being sin-free, but as one who's repenting, who's working to, to, to obey his father, He strives for good. And that's another, back to that key point, that Job's impending suffering isn't a result of his actions. It's vital to recognize that we often, you know, just blame ourselves for circumstances that are are way beyond our control. And and Job is about to face that kind of a trial that is, is part of God's larger plan that's completely invisible to him. He doesn't see what we're seeing. And, and Paul touches on this theme in Ephesians 3.10, suggesting that through the church, through God's people, God's manifold wisdom is made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This implies that sometimes suffering of the righteous serves a much greater purpose than what we can imagine. That it transcends our understanding and our imagination Because when we're suffering, God's love for humanity is preached not just on this earth, but throughout the heavenly realm. Our our struggle and our endurance magnifies God's glory to every creature in the universe. As 1 Peter 1.12 suggests, even the angels are in awe of God's love for us imperfect creatures. And when we cling to him, despite our suffering, it it affirms his goodness to all beings because we were made in his image and we were made to reflect his glory. But those like Satan and his dark angels can't even comprehend this. Our adversaries think they're winning when they strike us. But Christians, we're, we're much like nails. The harder you hit us, you drive us deeper embedding us into the heart of God. Often, the most profound and joyous experiences with God emerge from our greatest trials. In our affliction, though we may seem to be stripped bare, we're actually enveloped, surrounded in His presence. Satan answer the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face, God. See, Satan is questioning the authenticity of Job's faith, suggesting it's rooted in what he gets from God, the blessings and the protection. He is cynical, proposing that removing those blessings will lead Job to renounce God. And this narrative illustrates a contrast. Well, God's angels grow in faith, witnessing our trials and steadfast love for God. Satan becomes increasingly cynical, 
Cynicism is a belief in an inherent self-interest. That's because that's who he is. And skepticism of any kind of sincerity. And that's challenged by Christian witness in suffering. Our, Our capacity for good is rooted in being made in God's image. And we shine brightest when we maintain faith and selfless service amidst our trials. In a world often colored by cynicism, our unwavering worship and and thriving through loss and suffering stands as a testament to God's enduring goodness and the falsity of the cynic's perspective. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, and only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Observe who authorizes Satan to test Job. It's God himself. Yet he imposes very crucial limitations. He can't touch the man. He's protected. And this demonstrates a key aspect of divine sovereignty. Even in the midst of suffering permitted by God, there's still a protective boundary. God is still there. Satan may challenge us, but he lacks the authority to annihilate us. This distinction is vital, illustrating God's profound love for us and his desire to save us from destruction. And that's a, a theme that's it's echoed in John um, uh, uh, 3, 17 and 18. For God not, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name, he's not believed in the goodness of God, in the name of the only son of God, Jesus. See, Satan's goal is to lead us to condemnation, often attributing our suffering to God in hopes that we will turn away and become lost from God and be destroyed. Consider engaging with a very staunch atheist, one who very vehemently opposes God. They, they often accuse God for being the, the source of all evil, while in reality, God permits suffering for a season for a far greater purpose, our salvation. The ultimate demonstration of this is God allowing his own son to endure suffering for our redemption. Might it be that he allows suffering for our betterment and for the benefit of those around us? Suffering in this life becomes a a testament to his goodness. Prosperity can breed entitlement, but adversity teaches us character, gratitude, selflessness, and the understanding that we are not the center of the universe. Pain, friends, is, is God's megaphone to call on us when we're otherwise unattentive to him. God cares, friends, more about our character than our comfort. Comfort can lead us astray, making us resentful to God, whereas suffering can be a profound teacher of God's true value to our lives. Consider Job's situation. He might have believed that he had control of his life. He had control of his children's future. He's even praying for them and their sin, thinking his righteousness could could influence God and, and was kind of working God for his favor. 
And yet he needed to learn that God's goodness and plan are independent of our human action, which is good. And it far surpasses our understanding. See, Job feared God, and he did good, but perhaps he retained that sliver of control, trying to be his own savior and his own children's savior. And this trial was to teach him about the unseen cosmic struggle so that he could learn to fully trust in the sovereignty of God and his goodness. Now, there was a day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine with their oldest brother's house, and they came um, a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them <coughs> and took them down and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, there came another servant who said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep, and the servants consumed them. Or, or, no, the servants didn't consume roast sheep. The servants were consumed, right? I, I read that wrong. They were all consumed. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while yet he was still speaking, there came another who said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck them down on the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Haunting phrase in this passage is, as he's still speaking, the next guy and the next guy, and that's why I say, sometimes it seems like all this is happening at once, right? And, and when God momentarily lowered his protective hedge around Job, Satan acted quickly, bam! First Peter warns us, be sober, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to someone to devour Satan is like a mean dog on a chain, restrained by God. But if, friends, we stray too close through our sin and our folly, Satan won't hesitate to strike us. If you're breathing right now, it's because God is restraining Satan out of love for you. Because he wants to destroy you. God is our refuge. But what happens if we step out of that refuge? We're praying. We're prey. I've observed lions hunting in the savannas of Africa, and it can be this serene day, gazelles leaping, zebras grazing. But when the water buffalo strays from the herd, like, oh, I'm going to go over here and have a drink. Bam! A lion has been lurking in the weeds the whole time. You know, James... Job's children were celebrating, sheep were grazing, camels spitting, oxen working, donkeys playing, and the lion Satan watched, held back by God. And I want you to see that God doesn't instigate, instigate Satan's hatred and evil and so, uh, towards us, and he doesn't direct his actions. He sometimes just simply allows a moment for Satan to act on his own destructive nature. And in an instant, Job loses $2.8 million. It's a loss, right? The Sebians' attack wasn't God's doing. Their violent intent of their hearts was already there, and Satan just used that to attack them. The describes the fire of God from heaven. But friends, that was the perspective of Job's servant. Satan is a powerful agent that is usually restrained by God, 
Otherwise, we'd be in power, peril all the time from his power. But for a brief moment, God allowed Satan to use his power. Yet it is God. Did you see that? God is blamed by the servant Job. It's fire from heaven, fire from God. They assume it's his fire. See, Satan seems to mimic or he seeks to mimic God to incite fear and worship towards himself, to lead us into a sin trap so that we will stray from God's protection. And yet while he was still speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking and, and their oldest brother at their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And friends, in times of suffering, it's easy to feel like we are being punished by God. But it's crucial to understand is God is not the punisher. It is the adversary, Satan. He is the one who seeks to inflict punishment to destroy. His goal is to drive us away from God so they can lead us to destruction. In contrast, in God, in his love, he disciplines us. Not to harm us, but to draw us closer to him, to drive us closer into his heart so that we stay close and we stay under his protective wing. Evil, friends, does not originate from God. There's no evil in him. I've often heard skeptics question the presence of God in the, the face of suffering, like, oh, those starving children in Africa or those natural disasters that, that claim innocent lives. But who was the true cause of the destruction in Job's case? Who's to blame? Satan. It wasn't God. It was Satan who orchestrated the national disaster a natural disaster, causing the roof to collapse, killing his children. It was Satan who stirred the hearts of the Sabaeans with hate and greed to go attack and, 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 and destroy the sheep. It was Satan who imitated God by sending fire from heaven so that God would be blamed. Friends, I've been to Africa. I've witnessed firsthand the abundance of resources. There. It's just, you feel it when you get off the plane. God has provided for that land. God has done everything for those people. But, but it's man. It's a greed of humanity inflamed and attempted by Satan and, and satanic values that has caused children to suffer in Africa. It's not God. It's the evil in man's heart stoked by Satan that leads to wars and blocks the flow of God's resources to his children. And you know what? Besides, in spite of that, faith is flourishing there. It's flourishing. Andrea can't even keep up with it. It's flourishing. Faith is growing in Africa. Many others are there. But not here in the land of plenty. Right? Not here in the land of plenty, a place, you know, but it's flourishing in lands of hard, hardship. Talk to Peter. He grew up in Egypt and Middle East and and the faith is flourishing where there's suffering and hardship because people go to a refuge and they go to God. We often mistakenly believe that a lack of suffering is a sign that God doesn't love us. But perhaps it's the opposite. Our suffering as a believer is a testimony that God does love us. The Bible says God disciplines those he loves. 
He prevents us from being spoiled and entitled, leading to our ultimate destruction. Consider Paul, a man deeply assured of Christ's loves. This is what Jesus told Ananias' buddy to go tell him. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Did God love Paul? A lot. Right? He allowed him to suffer for his sake. And through his suffering, Paul wrote some of the most joyful words in the Bible that have given comfort and hope to billions of people. But we tend to think we're loved when we don't suffer. But in reality, suffering is a sign that we are cherished sons and daughters. For through it, God is molding our character to be like our Father. Well, you might be thinking, well, what about Job's innocent children and servants? Well, let's firstly consider the concept of innocence. Even Job, who God directly commends as good and righteous, is not a man without sin. He's not innocent. The Bible says that the wage of sin is death. It's why death has entered the world. And his children for whom he made, or that, that, that Job made sacrifices for, were not free of sin. We know that because Job's making sacrifices for him. This leads to the question of the false notion of human beings that we're innocent. The truth is, if we roll back the curtain, we all deserve to die because of our sin, any sin. And secondly, we must acknowledge the inevitability of death for each one of us, all of children of Job's children and servants, every human being are all destined to face death at some point. That's just reality. But what if in his infinite wisdom, God chose to protect them from further suffering by calling them into his kingdom early? We often view death, like let's say of a baby, an innocent baby, as horrifically tragic from our perspective. Yet from a heavenly viewpoint, the dog's not on him anymore. Could this not be seen as an act of divine mercy? That baby is in joy, without pain and without suffering anymore. Because in God's kingdom, there is no sickness, there's no dying, there's there's no pain, there's just joy in in God's presence. You know, perhaps these heavenly angels, the the good ones, perceive such a departure as that, as a merciful act that they praise that that child's now home. And we see it as a tragedy. I'm not minimizing our suffering and death. I'm just saying we see it differently than heaven does. You know, many of us can relate to the idea of death as a release from suffering, especially when it comes to to those who have endured and prolonged in an illness for a time, and we see it as an act of mercy when God takes them home. But if we believe that God is good and he, that he works in all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose and that he does not commit, commit evil, could some of what we perceive as evil actually be his divine mercy? And that's really hard when somebody gets taken away unexpectedly. We all seem more accepting of death as mercy when it ends a life of pain compared to when it 
it, it grabs somebody unexpectedly before what we deem as their time. But, but scripture tells us that God ordains every hour of our lives for his purposes. And life and death are not the mercy of random cruelty. We're not, life and death are not a random thing, random cruelty of the universe. But they're under the sovereign hand of God. That's what the scriptures tell us. He has purposed for every day we spend on the earth. And he alone determines their number. Psalm 139 beautifully says this, for my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when yet there was none of them. Life and death are a matter of God's sovereign will. And God's journey through suffering teaches us a profound theological lesson that God is sovereign. And his ways are beyond our understanding. And his word assures us that all things truly do work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's not that all things in life are good and feel good. Satan does evil. Yet they work for a good God who's bringing out a good purpose. Yes, Job had lost his friends, but spoiler alert, spoiler alert, at the end of the chapter, in chapter 42, God gives Job back double the sheep he lost, double the camels he lost, double the oxen, double the donkeys, 5.6 million in value for a little suffering, right? Not bad. Not bad considering God freely gave him the 2.8 million that he had in the first place. It all came from God. And he let Satan take it away for a little while so that Job would continue to grow in the image of God. When he said, well, what about his children? Well, God gave him 10 more. and said God doubled everything Job had, right? So those children are still there. He gave him 10 more. He doubled everything Job lost, right? You're thinking cynically like an atheist if you're thinking, what happened to the 10 children? If God doubled sheep and donkeys, don't you think God's love would double up and restore those ones made in his own image? They're not lost to God. God cared for Job. Now he has 20 children. Just 10 have a different residence, heaven. I think Job survived his losses, and I think he's thriving in his losses. How did he survive the pain of loss and suffering? He continued to worship God through his pain. Then Job arose and tore his his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground, and he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's woman, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Notice, Job fully acknowledges and feels the pain of his suffering. Friends, like I said before, it's, it's okay to, to be not okay emotionally at times. He mourns, which is a, a crucial step for our healing process. 
Emotions, I've found, are like time travelers. They, they don't know time. And if we don't process hurt, it, it resurfaces later in more awkward and more harmful ways to us. I often like to think of grief like ocean waves, that they're unexpected and they're powerful. In Hawaii, I learned the best thing to do when body surfing is when the big waves are coming to knock you down, you dive into the middle of them and you pass right through them and eventually you pass to the calmer water. But if we try to stand up against those waves, they'll get you knocked down. And it's the same when the griefs of of emotion come in our mourning. They prolong and they intensify our suffering if we will not just dive into the wave and, and process the feelings that we're having. To heal, we must dive into those emotions. We must feel the loss that we're going through. The Bible says emotions are not sinful. They're something that need to be processed. And if not processed, you know, friends, they lead to sin. See, Job here is, is honest about his pain and, and, and continued his habitual character of, of worship. And Job's, Job's emotions of grief were messy, shaving his head and you know, just tearing his clothes. But look at what God's word says. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. It's not sinful to feel pain. In the midst of profound losses, Job found a way to survive and even thrive. His response to suffering was to feel it deeply, but also at the same time worship God in the midst of it. And as Job worshiped, he grew in theological understanding. He declared, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. This this statement reflects profound gratitude. Job recognized that all that he had was more than what he, he deserved. We too can find strength in suffering through gratitude. Gratitude to God. Acknowledging that loss is part of our earthly existence, but it's there to help us to thrive. The ultimate source of our strength is trusting in the goodness of God. When Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord, he acknowledges that God is good and sovereign in his power and in his authority. Unlike Satan who seeks to destroy, God chose to love us And he loves us so much that he sent his one and only son to suffer and die on a Roman cross, fulfilling his will to bless all who have sinned against him with forgiveness and and with everlasting life. Job is honest about his sin. And he's honest about the sin of humanity. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. And And I believe nakedness here refers to the shame of our sin, that we doubt God, that we we rebel against God our human nature of sin and, and, and nakedness, and shame. But friends, Job's admitting he has no power to save himself, and we have no power to save ourselves from it. But if we trust in God, that he seeks to be good and, and to reward us because of his love for us alone, even in the midst of suffering and the sin of life, friends, we will be restored. Friends, Our nakedness will be covered. We'll be clothed in in Christ's righteousness, in God's goodness. 
and, and, and we're going to be restored more than double our losses in his kingdom. Jesus himself conquered the shame of the grave, walking out of it, proving that God has the power to restore more than our earthly losses in his kingdom. Paul says this present suffering is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Brothers and sisters, nothing compared to what God has for the good that God has for us. Brothers and sisters, let us survive and thrive through life's losses, trusting in his goodness and his love. Let us pray. Father, I I thank you that your word is always relevant. It's always right to where we're at because you are good and you love us. And I know many of my brothers and sisters are hurting over losses and it's okay to not be okay right now. But let them recognize that this is a season and that you ultimately want to bless them and do good to them. And Father, if there's anybody here today that's lived a life of cynicism and has not put their trust in you, and just maybe today that they've seen that you are good and that you are for them and that you are not against them. And I pray that right now that they would turn from their, their brokenness and their pain and they would turn to you because you can heal and restore them. Let them turn, repent, and believe on Jesus. And you will recover their lives. You will bless them more than they can imagine. You want to do abundantly more than what they can think and imagine in their lives. And so, Father, I I just pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would convict their hearts that they they might turn from false beliefs to true beliefs about who you are and, and your good love for them. Faith is believing that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Father, in faith, may they seek him today and find blessing. Lord, you give and you take it away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. We praise you because no matter what's going on right now, it is well, it is well in our soul. He can't touch our soul. That guard dog cannot have our soul because, Lord, you have claimed it. Father, do a good and mighty work in our hearts as we continue to worship you.